We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hey everybody, this is Brandon, and for this episode, we've actually shared a 2016 Ron Payton Innovation Lecture that was given by Dr. John Childs, titled, Innovative Educational Methods to Accelerate Development of the Workforce. Now, to give some background, this was recorded on September 19th, 2016 at Duke University, and I'd also like to thank Chad Cook and Duke University for allowing us to share this presentation through our podcast. I hope you enjoy. Good morning. Well, fantastic morning to everyone. Um, I'd like to welcome everybody to our third Ron Payton Innovation Series lecture. Yeah. On behalf of our chief, Mike Landry, and the DPT faculty, we're so excited you're here, especially with the weather that you had to tackle to get here. My name is Chad Cook. For those who don't know, I'm the program director. So our innovation series is named after one of our alumnus, uh, Ron Payton, who is a long-time disruptive innovator in physical therapy. Whether it's uh, influences associated with the sports section or how he created something that eventually became the combined sections, his handprints are all over this profession. So our fall speaker is Dr. John Childs. And Dr. Childs is the founder and CEO of Evidence in Motion and a partner in Confluent Health, which includes Evidence in Motion, a network of 80-plus physical therapy clinics, and Fit for Work, which helps employers decrease injuries and work compensation costs. Dr. Childs is a graduate from the U.S. Air Force Academy. He completed his MBA from the University of Arizona, his PhD from the University of Pittsburgh. He served 20 years in the Air Force. Dr. Childs has collaborated on over $10 million in funding. He also has over 150 scientific publications. He is an Ernst and Young Entrepreneur and Year Finalist, a San Antonio Healthcare Hero, and the youngest Catherine Worthingham Fellow ever. You can also follow Dr. Childs on Twitter. He uh, only has about 5,000 followers, so he needs a few more. And that's at, at ChildsJD. So everybody go ahead and give him another 200 followers. <laughs> I've known uh, John for a long time, and he has historically been ahead of the curve on many things in physical therapy. He's not afraid to speak his mind, and he is the embodiment of what we look for in a Ron Payton Innovation Lecture. He's a person that tells the truth and pushes buttons, and this is what this lecture is about. It is worth noting that Dr. Childs was originally scheduled to speak in February. We had a snowstorm then. He came today, a torrential downpour. <laughs> gas shortages, 
So it's pretty certain that you won't be invited back, John. This is not a, not a coincidence. Please join me in welcoming Dr. John Charles. Thanks, Chad. I really appreciate the uh, warm introduction, and uh, hopefully, uh, maybe at some point, I do get invited back. But I guess that depends on how well received or not maybe this talk uh, will be today. What I hope to do is stir the pot just a bit on what the future of DPT education uh, might look like and innovation in education. Uh, and in some respects, I'll put my real cynical hat on and say that that is the oxymoron of oxymorons when you talk about innovation in education because as an academic, and I speak uh, not just as an entrepreneur sort of business guy, but I speak as a traditional stodgy uh, you know, academic as well, uh, we're not always on the forefront of doing real sorts of innovative things. There are very entrenched interests, uh, as we all know within academics that makes the wheels of what we do move slowly. So I'll try to be uh, provocative. Uh, there may well be some things I say I don't actually believe myself, if for no other reason, just to stimulate some dialogue. I'll try to keep it to about a half an hour uh, because I think the biggest uh, bang for our buck will hopefully be some interactive discussion uh, that we uh, get. Now, I must say, I did not realize how many connections I had to Duke. Uh, you know, Ron uh, let me know last night that he was uh, the man behind uh, the Dogwood Institute. And Ron, I did look it up after dinner last night. Uh, the very first CE course I ever went to as a licensed physical therapist was a Dogwood course back in 1996. So you never know uh, when your paths are gonna cross. I had uh, no idea. Uh, there's folks like uh, Derek Cluley. Where's Derek? Derek and I have worked together for a long time when he was back at uh, Benchmark uh, Physical Therapy. Benchmark was a big network partner of ours uh, at EIM, and I know I'm going to leave out names. I remember Chad when he was a nobody uh, back in 2001, 2002. I was telling him on the way over here, his first talk at AOMP, I'll never forget it, he was way out in front of his skis saying all sorts of things that I'm not sure were exactly true, but man, he was confident in what he said. And I knew he was, I knew he was uh, going places. And then of course, I, I, I would be really remiss if I didn't mention my good friend, uh, Dr. Steve George. I don't even know if Steve will remember this, uh, but Steve and I were uh, classmates uh, at Pitt uh, in the PhD program, and Steve was actually one of the, if we must be you know, fully transparent, one of the founders right, of, of Evidence in Motion way, way back in the day. Uh, this was before like, we tanked the first time and then EIM was fully born a few years later. But in any event, this is, uh, uh, Steve is uh, you know, pulling the cart. This is like 2002 maybe, something like that. Uh, Greg Hicks, if you, anybody knows Greg, uh, and then uh, myself, Sarah Piva, who's still uh, on faculty at the University of Pittsburgh, and then uh, Tara Ridge, who you may or may not know. But in any event, Steve uh, and I go way back, and uh, it's fun to see uh, old friends and colleagues that are here uh, with us. Now, to kick things off, I, I think it goes without saying um, that higher education has been an incredible benefactor of the welfare state, right? Um, you only have to look at campuses like Duke to appreciate the value of federal funding and, and, and things like student loans. And I don't say that to be cynical because this exists everywhere within academics. But academics have thrived off of federal loans that have heavily, heavily subsidized the cost of education. And we have built these monstrosities of buildings and campuses and programs that may or may not survive if they were subject 
completely to the free markets. And in light of all the tuition increases we've seen and maybe this looming bubble that perhaps is starting to burst in higher education, it's important that those of us in academics really consider the risks that we face unless we start looking uh, much more closely at the programs that we develop and whether they can survive and stand up under their own uh, weight. And frankly, the way we teach has changed very little within not just physical therapy education, but academics as a whole. Um, I like to say um, laptops and PowerPoints were one of the worst inventions known to mankind. Faculty became sort of enslaved uh, to laptops where we sort of lecture in one-way forms um, sort of at students as opposed to involving students. And I know here at Duke you do a lot of innovative things with respect to team-based learning and a number of other active learning strategies. But nonetheless, by and large, education has not substantively uh, changed. And at EIM, at least, we're really banking the future of education on the adult learner. not traditional pedagogy, which by the way, the root form of that is pediatrics, right, or, or, or children. So we like to think of education as being targeted at adults who are internally motivated, self uh, sort of goal oriented. Um, they want practical learning. We certainly see this in the millennial generation. The importance of this is growing even more. And we have to really consider whether the methodologies that we are currently using, in, in this case we'll uh, keep it to entry-level DPT education, are in fact the most effective ways of teaching. Now the good news and bad news is our students by and large across all of our programs pass the licensure exam. So there's enormous sort of um, uh, inertia that would suggest what's the problem? Our students pass the exam, they become licensed, they contribute to the profession, what's the problem? And so we'll talk about what some of those issues are and the looming train that may be coming in front of us, not the least of which are a few huge forces that are happening within academics. Rising costs that can't be sustained, a fundamental change in the demand of the kinds of students that we're going to be seeing in our programs in the future, and then not the, last, uh, not the least of which, finally, is what we'll spend some time on today, uh, disruptive technology that is completely unhinging faculty from brick and mortar spaces and unhinging students from brick and mortar spaces uh, as well. I think we all know that the cost of education has far outpaced uh, any sort of normative uh, inflationary sorts of reasonable increases. Uh, we've all seen the price of cars, computers, you name it, uh, Moore's Law, we get better computing power for less dollars. In academics, it's been completely the opposite. We pay more and more and more, in some cases, for less and less uh, and less and we build these monstrosities of infrastructure and fixed costs uh, that really can't be sustained in a next generation economy of higher education. Uh, some folks would suggest that the next big bubble uh, to burst within the sort of the federal sector is in fact the educational loan uh, system. Uh, if you didn't keep up with the news, IT Tech, which is one of the big for-profit uh, colleges, just went bust uh, last week. Uh, there are a number of these uh, institutions that are uh, going bankrupt. Uh, going to college has become like owning a home, right? We, we, where we saw that owning a home is the American dream. Everyone should own a home. Whether you can afford it or not, the federal government will give you money to own a home. So people who never should be owning a home go buy a home. And then we all saw what happened with the subprime mortgage crisis. The college 
bachelor's degree, the college education has become that very uh, next generation uh, benefit that every American should do and everyone has a right to education. And so what does the federal government do? It gives loans to students who have absolutely no business ever going to college. Uh, they should be becoming uh, plumbers, electricians, pursuing all sorts of other very noble, valid um, careers that suit their strengths, but they have no business in college, and so we're seeing higher and higher default rates on student loans. Uh, that's uh, really bringing us to uh, the discussion that we're going to have this morning about how that impacts us in PT. Uh, the demand is also changing. More and more jobs uh, are going to be automated, and we're going to see this enormous shift from the typical undergraduate going straight to PT school to many second career uh, applicants into PT who are leaving jobs and professions that are otherwise being now automated in this, um, this internet of things, if you will. Uh, and we're certainly seeing this uh, in our program that I'll talk about a little bit in partnership with South College. We probably have 30 to 40 percent of our students are second career uh, kinds of students that are attracted to this type uh, of model. So um, by and large, if you just look at rising costs and you just look at uh, changes in demand, that alone would be enough to say that maybe the emperor has no clothes in our current model of education. But certainly when you add in technology, this is the next big thing in education. Uh, how many folks have taken a massively open online course? Has anyone done those? Okay, so a lot of folks have, right? You can access the best world-class education for absolutely free. Um, maybe not my children, but my children's children, they won't go to Duke for undergrad. Um, they will come to Duke to get whatever the best world-class content here is at Duke, and then they'll go to Harvard to get whatever best world-class content is there, and they will piecemeal their own uh, self-constructed conglomerate of a degree. The, the days of going to a single university to learn everything that you need to learn, um, I would argue, are coming to an end, and we'll be able to avail ourselves to uh, the very best uh, education across multiple uh, institutions, and blended learning allows us to do this. Now, how does this impact the profession of PT? Well, here's the good news. There is no one that suggests physical therapy is not going to be a major part of the next generation of healthcare reform. It is on every list of the fastest growing uh, professions. Uh, if, you, if you follow the money, uh, private equity is pouring hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars uh, into the consolidation of at least outpatient uh, physical therapy because everyone recognizes that PT is the secret sort of recipe for what ails a lot of what's going on in healthcare. Now we've not seen the full sort of renaissance of what that future can look like, but certainly, at least from my chair, I'm very optimistic for our, the role of PT uh, going uh, forward. And as a result of that, we've got huge demand, right? Here at Duke, you probably have north of 1,000 applicants for roughly 75-ish seats, is that fair to say? So uh, even if you uh, dedupe the applicant pool, because we know students apply to multiple programs, you've probably got five or six unique applicants who are highly qualified applying for every seat uh, in, in physical therapy schools. But nonetheless, the demand is still outpacing our ability as educators to keep up with the number of applicants. Uh, this is some of, uh, where's Mike? This is some of Mike's work. And, um, and we won't uh, review this in a lot of detail, but Mike, um, you know, throw stones at me if I misquote sort of your, your data here. But under most any assumptions that you look at, the demand for physical therapy is going to continue to outpace the supply 
um, out through at least 2020. And I don't know if this date has been updated sort of past then, if this gap is sort of where you see it now. But as educators, we simply cannot pump out enough DPT students to cope with the growing demand for our services in light of the baby boomers retiring, the aging population, and finally the days of drug, surgery, and imaging having sort of seen their best days uh, finally coming down and what we think will be a real renaissance for the value of a PT. So here's the problem. We have too many small DPT programs. Uh, there's about 220, 225, I don't know exactly the number, somewhere in there, number of PT programs. Um, there's about 141 medical schools. Um, yet far more uh, physicians in the United States than there are physical therapists, which speaks to uh, sort of class sizes. I don't think it's lost on any of us that medical schools have much larger class sizes than the average PT school. Um, that is sort of a brick and mortar uh, program that tends to have on average 30 to 40 students, um, recruits maybe seven to eight faculty, and so it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that when you have all of these developing programs in a brick and mortar model recruiting the same number of faculty that we have such a shortage of faculty within physical therapy. I like to say that uh, the qualifications for faculty these days uh, is about the same as the qualifications to become a clinical instructor. You have to have a license, a heart rate, and a pulse. And if you meet those three criteria, you are eligible to teach and you're eligible to uh, deliver what I think is the most critical part of a physical therapy curriculum, which is clinical education, and yet, as faculty within most DPT programs, we sort of look at the DCE at a distance and go, wow, I'm glad I'm not you. And we hope, and we hope, and we pray that when we send our students out, that they will catch something useful. We don't really know for sure exactly what they're learning. There's usually not much of a curriculum. You sort of catch what you can. You do the very best. And this is not critical of anything here at Duke, right? I'm speaking in very general terms, uh, maybe a little cynically perhaps, maybe even overstated. But nonetheless, we have very little control over the quality of what's delivered in the most critical phase of our uh, curriculum. And oh, by the way, students are paying a real premium tuition to Duke, and what do the clinical educators get out of that deal? I'm not quite sure why, as a clinician, we even deliver clinical education, but that's a whole nother um, talk altogether. So, where are we sort of seeing the future going? Well, we like to think that in light of technology, that the future of education is really enabling, finally, for faculty to become much more of the guide on the side. Doing what faculty, I think, were originally intended to do, which is in part uh, clinical reasoning, um, much less so the sage on the stage sort of lecturing at students, uh, students via flipped classroom technologies, uh, high definition virtual classrooms can watch recordings of lectures all day long on any device. They can be sitting on the beach, uh, they can rewind, record, um, they can be drinking their favorite drink while they're learning if that's sort of the way they learn. They can set up their own studio of learning that best suits uh, their environment and their uh, preferences. And so we think this is the future of where DPT education is going. And so what we really want to do is build a next generation world-class DPT program that sort of jumps the shark of all of the barriers of what we see at least in traditional uh, education. And oh by the way, 
uh, really begin to emphasize all of those soft skills like empathy and caring and compassion that we believe have been completely sort of pushed to the side in no small part because of individuals like Steve and Chad and, and myself who've ridden this bandwagon of evidence-based practice uh, almost perhaps to a fault where we have put the premium on data and evidence and sort of the specifics of which way we move our hands and which techniques are better than other techniques at the expense of really understanding the importance of the relationship and rapport that therapists have with their patient and the contribution that those soft skills make uh, into the outcome. So a very uh, a different way of teaching and a very different emphasis uh, in the curriculum when it comes to soft skills. So um, what does the model look like? Here's the secret sauce. And this is the part where some people would say, and I'm gonna be cynical here for a moment, that say, John, you shouldn't be sharing this with folks like Duke because they'll go out and they'll copy what you're doing and you're giving away all your secrets. And I must say, if I was talking to a group of entrepreneurs, uh, I wouldn't be sharing half of these slides. And please don't hear this as being sort of overly critical. But academics is not a place where we worry too much about competition. And, and please don't overhear that. I, don't, I, I would say this in any sort of an audience. Um, there's so much um, uh, going for the status quo. The status quo here will keep you where you are for many, many, many years. I'm, I'm really not too concerned. Um, now, I hope in jest some of you are offended enough that you might actually try to prove me wrong. And that would be a wonderful thing uh, that might well happen at a place like Duke where in all fairness, you do have some disruptive kinds of thinkers and you certainly have the infrastructure and potential to do some amazing things uh, with your curriculum. And I look forward to uh, meeting, I know, with your curriculum committee as you're going through some of these processes uh, now. So I don't say that in all seriousness. Hopefully you can, uh, people are able to take a joke in academics. <laughs> Um, so some of the key features, this is a two-year DPT. Now this really makes the hair on the back of the necks of academics stand up um, because the CAPTI criteria says DPT education is supposed to be three years. Does it really say that? That's what everybody says. So what the CAPTI criteria says is the program has to be 90 semester hours and in parentheses it says typically three years. So as a profession we have sort of like we all do, we overinterpret guidelines from CAPTI, and next thing you know, DPT education has to be three years. So when we first came out with this sort of concept, people said, uh, not just no, but hell no, CAPTI will never approve a two-year DPT program because you can't have a DPT program in two years. The CAPTI criteria don't allow it. One thing I've learned is never, never listen to anyone interpret the evaluative criteria. You actually have to read the criteria for yourself. Uh, CAPTI fortunately interprets the criteria by the letter of the law, not sort of conventional wisdom that gets interpreted and then passed down through the generations. So this is a two-year DPT. We fundamentally think that when we shifted from masters to DPT, higher education, supply and demand, uh, saw the opportunity to charge an extra year of tuition when the reality is we probably only needed maybe three to six months to capture pharmacology, radiology, imaging. Uh, most master's programs were anywhere from 18 to maybe I think your master's curriculum was maybe 22 months, something like that. So when we look at a two-year DPT, we do not apologize for its length. Uh, we believe this is actually right-sized for the 18-month curriculum, which is what I grew up in, at least as an Army Baylor graduate, adding about three to six months uh, for the components that are specific to uh, the reason why we transitioned to the DPT. The curriculum is uh, blended. Um, our students do not actually have to live in the local area from which the campus is located, and this really starts to throw people way off. 
Uh, we have students that live in about 30 different states. Uh, they commute into the campus for two week at a time uh, on-site intensives. We'll show that in just a bit. About 50% of the curriculum is online. I hesitate to use the word online because it conjures up ideas of students passively sitting in front of their computer watching videos. Um, our students are in synchronous classrooms, heavy, heavy faculty activity for two to three hours in the evening in the most sophisticated, high definition uh, classrooms you could ever imagine. Uh, it's better than the live classroom. We don't apologize for the platform. It is truly better than the live classroom in our view. A broad applicant pool. We don't view we're competing with other DPT programs. We're recruiting students, uh, many of whom live out in the middle of nowhere, who have no chance of ever becoming a physical therapist simply because of where they live. They're a second career uh, mom whose spouse is rooted, family, kids, uh, that have to move to a place like Raleigh-Durham in order to go to PT school. Uh, so there's an entire new applicant pool who's now available to come to a program uh, like this and ultimately deliver better value two years of tuition rather than three and time will tell on the outcomes because we're still in our first class but ultimately we think by standardizing um, a didactic curriculum that ultimately will be spread across programs across institutions we can curate a truly world-class curriculum why in the world with 250-ish DPT programs we have 250 different versions of an intro to biomechanics lecture I have no idea why don't we bottle where's Tim uh, sell his biomechanics content and share it across programs this idea that my little core faculty in my little brick and mortar sort of space somehow owns um, the best content is, is probably not a true assumption in most cases. And then, uh, by the way, uh, part of the rationale for a two-year curriculum is so that we can encourage more and more students to go on to a third-year post-licensure residency. And so we still talk about this model as a three-year program except you pay two years of tuition, you get your DPT, plus you become board certified in your residency uh, area of specialty. So active learning environments, uh, uh, we won't get into the specifics of the platforms, but we use Moodle, Blackboard Collaborate, all sorts of plugins. Uh, everyone asks about testing. Um, the security of testing online is far better than monitoring in a live classroom. Uh, the technologies are incredible. They track eye movements. Uh, we can see when students are you know, looking uh, down at other sources. There's algorithms that tell us which students are cheating. The analytics of the tests are incredible. Um, and we've actually caught a couple of two or three students who've been summarily dismissed for cheating through very, very sophisticated technologies that would have never been tracked in a traditional sort of live classroom for format where there's a faculty monitoring uh, test taking. Um, again, the specifics of the learning uh, platforms are, are not all that, I think, relevant for today's discussion, but these are very sort of contemporary um, uh, uh, platforms, all high definition. Uh, we can put 60 students in a, in a class, break them up into groups and have their own faculty and whiteboards and do group exercises and then bring them back together. Uh, and uh, the, the real sort of premise behind the curriculum is this flipped classroom concept. All the lectures are recorded. Um, each uh, two to three modules a week are reviewed. So a module consists of a recorded lecture, some readings, some uh, discussion questions that faculty will seed for the discussion boards. Uh, and we've tinkered with this now over the last 10 years. Uh, Texas State is one of the institutions uh, that has adopted this flipped classroom concept, at least for its musculoskeletal curriculum, um, and has won a number of uh, awards based on uh, some of the successes that that program has had. Now, the on-site labs really drive people crazy, and it certainly drives CAPTI crazy because students are in lab for about nine hours a day for roughly two weeks straight. 
And when you first sell this to Capti, Barry, and I, any, anybody, any Capti folks in the room, I always got to feel like I got to be careful here. All right, so I'll speak my mind. I know this is being recorded, but that's okay. Um, uh, the, the, the comments that come back are, oh my gosh, you're going to have students on their feet all day long. They're going to be exhausted at the end of a nine-hour day. And it's kind of like, you know, when is the last time any of these folks have been in a clinic to recognize that that's kind of what we do um, in our profession? And we think this trains therapists for the realities of a busy clinical setting. Here's something that'll really throw you for a loop. We do not take a single break all day long except for lunch. This is Tony Robbins style, like immersion constantly, right? Because we don't take breaks. Uh, anybody, any students that have done clinicals, do you get 30 minute uh, break uh, on your schedule, 30 minutes, go to the bathroom, check your phone? No, right? You figure out as an adult when during the clinic day you have time to go to the restroom. Same thing is true for our students. They meander in and out of the lab as they have biological and other needs sort of to do so. And we trust that they are smart enough to figure out um, maybe what parts of the labs, they, they kind of got this and they can move on and, and they can go um, you know, take breaks or, or do those things. So we get a lot of efficiencies out of the lab. We have as many or more contact hours in the lab as any traditional three-year program out there uh, because of the efficiency we, we get in the lab. Uh, we'll show just a, a little bit. This is a, a drone overview. Uh, hopefully this video will play. Uh, let me uh, try to get it out of screen sh show here. Is it playing? Oh, there, there we go. So this is a drone overflying our lab uh, at South College in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, it's extremely organized. Uh, many of us that were part of this program come from the military. So this is military sort of style, competency-based sort of education, if you will. Labs are, are very, very disciplined. Uh, they run through checklist after checklist. Uh, there's a method to every single part of the lab that goes on. Uh, faculty to student ratios are anywhere from about 1 to 8 to 1 to 10. So there's primary faculty uh, and then lab assistants and adjuncts uh, that come in. This is a class size. This is our most recent class that we just started a few months ago, about 95-ish uh, oh, or so uh, students. So that'll give you a sense for the lab. They do this for two weeks straight. Uh, including Saturdays, Sundays are off, Saturdays are testing time, remedial testing uh, as well, so Saturdays are kind of a half day. But nonetheless, when students finish these roughly quarterly labs, you can imagine they are exhausted. This is uh, intense uh, time of the curriculum. Now, let's uh, revisit clinical education just a bit. We've talked about the um, issues of clinical education in the didactics. When we shifted to the DPT, we all sort of focused on didactics. Uh, clinical education has not been touched in over 50 years. It's the same inefficient sort of one-on-one -on -one model where we hope for the best. We send students out to clinicians that sometimes we have a very disparate or little relationship with. Um, it's hard to uh, project what kind of experience our students are going to have. Some get, uh, you know, better experiences uh, than others. If you get a great CI, it's great. But if you have a couple of bad rotations, uh, you, you're really missing a huge part of your development as a professional. And so what we're really trying to do as part of this curriculum is build a 
curriculum for clinical education. So just like our students have a syllabus in the didactic phase with readings and lectures and modules and, and discussion questions, um, they go through the same type of curriculum uh, when they're in clinical education. Clinical education is not the time where students take a break. Um, they are going through module week after week after week in a very um, systematic way, just like they are when they're going through uh, the didactic phase. And by the way, this curriculum also gives our clinical faculty a uh, sort of an extra set of eyes and ears. So now it's not, uh, my experience as a student is not entirely dependent upon my CI. It takes a little bit of the pressure off the CI to be the all-knowing uh, therapist that's supposed to somehow transmit the entire universe of knowledge that my student is supposed to need. So the students can lean on the network to learn from. So they're being exposed to multiple clinical faculty uh, around the country. Uh, the model that we have is a uh, two clinical experiences. There's an eight week affiliation between year one and two. And then the last uh, 23 weeks uh, is a terminal internship at the end of year two. The eight week affil tends to be inpatient the 23-week affil tends to be more of an outpatient experience, and then transition into a paid post-professional residency in year three. Not gonna get into the curriculum in detail. We may do some more of this uh, with the curriculum uh, meeting, but this is uh, the clinical education curriculum. Um, so there's foundational modules, and there's modules relative to all practice areas. This is not just a heavy sort of musculoskeletal-based uh, curriculum um, that includes all the different uh, practice areas. All of our students are benchmarked relative to photo uh, so that we can uh, monitor outcomes uh, with our students compared to our residents, compared to our uh, fellows. Uh, this is a little bit of a snapshot of the curriculum and again the details of it are not all that relevant for our talk today. Uh, this is on a quarter system. It's uh, eight quarters, uh, 12 weeks in each quarter. Typically you'll have the first um, uh, probably nine to ten weeks of didactics. Students come together for the two-week on-site and then there's a finals uh, week during the last week uh, of, the, of the quarter. All of the courses are done via kind of an immersion uh, model where students are enrolled in uh, multiple courses at the same uh, time. Uh, clinical education, again, we've already reviewed briefly, but it's eight weeks between years one and two, most all inpatient, 23-week internship uh, at the end. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road and why hopefully um, uh, you know, I'm here in part at Duke. When we first started this, uh, this took us probably three years to get off the ground. I mean, you can imagine the resistance, right? Um, and, and some of this resistance is well-intended. It's all well-intended, actually, and it's coming from people that I have the most enormous respect for. Whenever you're chartering sort of new frontier, it's helpful to have people, believe it or not, that are not just in opposition, but in violent opposition, because you learn from that if you're willing to listen and not just sort of clam up and sort of reject it. And so fortunately, because of the opposition, we've gotten a lot better uh, over the last number of years. Uh, we finally settled on our first partner with South College. Uh, they're based out of Knoxville, Tennessee. That's not South University. Uh, those are different institutions, but nonetheless, South College uh, is a for-profit institution based out of Knoxville. Uh, we get a lot of dirty looks and people say, why are you working with that for-profit sector? You know, it's got the big bullseye on its chest these days in light of some of the bad actors that are out there. Um, but the short of it is, is that these are institutions that tend to be disruptive, they're willing to be innovative, and they're willing to go places that other traditional institutions won't go. We didn't talk to Duke specifically, but we talked to a lot of Duke-like institutions um, to be our partner. But imagine coming to Duke and me approaching 
whomever your biggest decision maker is and suggesting, you know, you've got this three-year cash cow. I have a great idea for you. Why don't you lop off an entire year, give up a third of your tuition, and let's do something really innovative and cool. I mean, you can imagine how well that would have, would have gone over. You really have to do this, we think, uh, with programs who either don't have an existing DPT program or programs who have an existing DPT program but may be interested in doing something a little different um, and offering a different model for applicant number 101 to 600, all of whom are highly qualified. Duke certainly turns away a lot of highly qualified applicants that you would love potentially to have in your DPT program. So although uh, South College was first, uh, very few folks in academics like to be first, um, and South was willing to take that risk, a number of others have now come behind them and wanting to be second and third and fourth. Um, so we are now in partnership uh, with Baylor uh, University to put a two-year DPT program up in Dallas. Um, and then University of the Incarnate Word, which has a traditional uh, three-year brick-and-mortar program in San Antonio uh, to do two-year DPT uh, in uh, Hawaii. Uh, and people say, Hawaii, why Hawaii? Well, the obvious is Hawaii is a terrific place uh, to visit. Uh, Hawaii doesn't have a DPT program. It's one of the two states, Hawaii and Alaska, we think there's enormous sort of educational tourism kind of opportunities. Uh, students on the West Coast, why would you pay $160,000 for DPT uh, when you can pay um, Incarnate Word, call it 90 to 100,000 for two years, make 30 to 40,000 in year three of residency. Uh, so let's do the math, that offsets to a total cost of education of around 60,000 for your DPT plus your board certification and residency. And we think that that's a tremendous value that as the applicant pool starts to understand that there's more and more two-year opportunities out there, maybe, maybe, even at a place like a South College, or if you want to be you know, critical of other smaller schools, we can avail ourselves to the very best uh, applicants. Um, I happened to graduate from the Army Baylor program. Um, when I was on faculty in the Army Baylor program, we loved, like you do at Duke, um, to talk about the quality of your applicant pool. Uh, we all brag about it. Um, Duke's got a ton of great DNA that comes into your programs. You have probably one of the most qualified applicant pools that exists in the country. Uh, at Army Baylor, uh, we had uh, just as high of a quality applicant pool, maybe higher, if in no small part because the program was completely subsidized by the federal government. So whenever you're offering full rides, you attract a lot of highly, highly qualified students. We think that the two-year model has a lot of potential to attract a very, very competitive and highly qualified uh, applicant. So just a little uh, mechanics of kind of where we are. We started the first class in the summer of 2015, so they'll be graduating now in less than a year from now. Uh, we had uh, a very, very uh, fast three months uh, to recruit our first class. So we started with a couple of hundred applicants, enrolled 65, uh, which we were just uh, incredibly pleased um, uh, for that short of, of an applicant uh, period. Uh, and then our last cycle, uh, we got close to 1,000 applications, enrolled uh, 94 students in our uh, second class. This shows where uh, students are living. Again, they're commuting from all over the country. Knoxville is not exactly the easiest place to get to, and yet still students living in 30-ish different states. We actually have, uh, we don't show Hawaii on here, but Hawaii, we have a student that's commuting uh, from uh, Hawaii in the second uh, cohort. Uh, the clinical experiences are all over the country. Again, the details uh, are maybe not all that relevant for this talk. Uh, the eight-week experience, primarily inpatient uh, experience. And then for the uh, six-month terminal internship, uh, we 
uh, divide students up, and this has just happened, this is a matching process, much like happens in medicine, where students either select into residency or uh, not to third year residency. And depending on whether the student's going to residency or not, drives placement into their terminal internship. Because we have um, many terminal internship sites that will make commitments to our students to place them into residency uh, in a variety of practice specialties upon completion of a six-month terminal internship. So students self-select into residency, not residency. That determination then makes where they go out uh, for their uh, terminal internship. And we'll show you the data on the matching process here in just a bit. So all students uh, are encouraged to go to residency. We don't have a big hook that we can hook them uh, with. Uh, we don't withhold the DPT. It's not like we offer them the master's degree and then when they do residency, we grant them the DPT at the end. Uh, we simply build an expectation and a culture within the curriculum that what you do as a professional is go on to residency training. And lo and behold, uh, when you set up that expectation, that's in fact what students do. They don't know any differently. They don't know that less than 5% of their peers are going on to residency training. We've also given them now the headspace to go on to residency training, right? By, by making the DPT curriculum two years, students can now afford to go on to residency training because they've only paid tuition for two years rather than uh, three. So the residency, without getting into all the details, is a uh, one year, what we call a hosted residency, full-time residency. A lot of our students will come into EIM residencies, but other residencies, they can compete for any any residency placement uh, in, the, uh, in the country for their third uh, year. Uh, this, will, uh, this is the result of our recent matching, which just happened a couple of weeks ago for the first class. Um, we are super, super excited to say that we've got north of about total, if you add up the different forms of residency, and we're not going to talk about the nuances of that, 40, 53, six, uh, 53 out of our 64-ish students going on contractually to third year residency. That's north of 80% of DPT grads going on to residency, and that's unique. Um, uh, we don't think that's unique because we're great. We think that's fairly simple because it's a two-year curriculum. Set the expectation that this is what you do as a professional, and lo and behold, students behave uh, in very predictable uh, ways when you give them that sort of uh, environment uh, to move forward. So I'm going to leave it at that, and hopefully we've got some time left, Chad, for maybe a few questions. Um, where, how are we doing on time? Okay, so we got about 10 minutes. I talked too much. Uh, questions? Feel free to throw stones. Yes. Okay, so the question, if you couldn't heard, uh, what about generalist, uh, uh, you know, versus becoming a specialist? Um, it's a fine argument. Uh, we have no problem with the generalist PT. Um, I will confess, I don't know what a generalist PT actually is. Um, and I don't say that to be cynical, but I'm, I'm not really sure. Every therapist works usually in a setting that specializes in one form or another in a certain form of care. Not always the case, um, but it's rare to be, especially in an outpatient setting where you truly, truly get uh, classic neuro, classic peds, classic, that does happen sometimes, but it's the exception. Uh, we think that the body of knowledge as a profession has advanced enormously over the last 10 or 15 years, and that specialization sooner rather than later is the way to go. Uh, so that is in part what the terminal internship is designed to do, is to track students into their specialty preference sooner rather than later. Um, there's certainly a lot of debate as to whether that's the right thing or not, but 
in our view, specialty training sooner rather than later is sort of where we're going as a, as a profession in light of just the specialization process and the amount of evidence that's available to support what we do in all these different disciplines. Ah, yes, so, so uh, for, for all sorts of good reasons, uh, we have uh, 10 students or so, right, that are not going on to residency. Uh, some of those are family reasons. They live in the middle of nowhere. They're taking care of aging parents. Uh, they're not sure what they want to do. Um, they got through their 23-week experience. They thought they wanted to do outpatient uh, ortho. They're really rethinking it. Maybe they want to focus more in neuro. So there's no, um, and, I, and I'm glad you asked that question, there's also no uh, scarlet letter uh, that we put on students that elect not to go on to residency. Uh, there are there are valid reasons why some students don't go on to residency. Nonetheless, the peer pressure effect is certainly there in a positive way, we think. Uh, but there are situations like that where students will choose to kind of uh, hold back because they, they haven't really figured out what they want to do yet when they, when they kind of grow up, so to speak. Yeah, so that's a great uh, question. Um, so um, I, I'm not going to say CAPTI was violently opposed because CAPTI actually, as a panel, they would never say this publicly, um, but has somewhat embraced this model slow, slowly, but has embraced it because everyone recognizes that we need fundamental change. Like everybody talks about change. Uh, even the people that throw stones will say, yeah, we need to change. And then they'll throw stones at the people who are changing. Um, and that's normal. We get that. Um, we, we, we get that. Uh, but CAPTI, in its criticism early on of the curriculum, uh, we got denied candidacy the first time through. Ironically, we were not denied based on anything about the model. There was nothing about the two years. There was nothing about the platform. Um, some of our curriculum stuff was just not where it needed to be. And that was a very, gosh, you got to take your medicine kind of a thing. So I wouldn't say that was um, a violent opposition per se. Um, I think I can say this publicly because if he were here, um, uh, he, he would stand up and probably uh, raise his hand and say he was in opposition, uh, but our good friend um, out at uh, USC, our uh, uh, program director out there, why am I blanking on his name? Jim, yeah, Gordon. Uh, uh, if you were at his talk at Next, what, a couple of years ago, um, that was an anti-what-we-are-doing um, talk. Um, and he likes to write letters to CAPTI, and, and I have the greatest of respect for Jim. Uh, Jim and I are actually going to be debating this um, uh, as part of the Graham sessions. If anybody goes to the Graham sessions, uh, the, that, that, that will happen. Um, and so I don't say that in personal criticism of him at all. I have a lot of respect for Jim. He actually has a lot of respect for, I, I think, now better understanding what we're trying to do. Uh, by the way, uh, one of the things that comes up, and I'm glad you asked this question, uh, we don't think that uh, the top tier physical therapy programs have anything to worry about. If you want to sit on your, your keisters and do nothing for 20 years, Duke's going to be fine, um, right? Duke's Duke. It's always going to be okay because it's Duke. So it doesn't have to do anything. Um, the programs that are really going to be at risk as this scales up, right, are the under-resourced, smaller 30 to 40 brick-and-mortar sorts of programs. And so those are the kinds of programs um, that if I were leading those programs, I would, I, I would start to get a little concerned. Um, if you're, we don't think the three-year... Uh, curriculum is going away. We think the demand is so high that, heck, if you did, wanted to do a five-year curriculum and have students pay 200000 you could fill a class if you wanted to do that here at Duke. You really could. Uh, um, we just think the demand uh, is so big right now that three-year programs, especially top programs, have a long runway ahead of them. Yes? 
Um, yeah, so we probably have, I don't have the data in front of me, but I'd probably say 80% of them are going on to uh, various forms of EIM residency, whether it be orthopedic, sports, uh, neuro, I mean, it's the whole sundry of, of practice specialties. And, and, and by the way, it, let me, because I, I, I cut that off too soon, um, we would love our students to go to a lot of other, res there's not enough residency placements. We're placing 100 students, and at scale, this is going to be 600 students a year. So find me 600 residency slots outside of EIM's residency, we'll place them all day long. Um, this, this has nothing to do with sort of self-feeding as much as it does really buying into the value of residency. And anybody that wants to scale up residency with us, have at it. We would absolutely love that. We would welcome the competition. You know, uh, uh, people look at us and say, you know, think we take great pride and being 10 times larger than any other residency program out there, I take zero pride in that at all. I think it means we suck in academics in our ability to evolve with the times. That's, that's my honest feeling about it. We think that the demand is so big, it's sad that we've got 10 applicants for every residency seat, and we turn away. All nine of those applicants that get turned away from any residency program, send them our way. We'll take them all day long. The fact that they're even interested in residency means they're likely very highly qualified based on their self-selection into residency. And, I, and, I don't, and I'm not answering your question by any means in an overly personal way. That's just, if you really want to know what I think, that's what I, what I think. Yeah, question. Great question. Like any new program, um, our first class uh, was sort of you know, marginal. You, you, whenever you go into the process as a new program, you're by definition unaccredited, right? You can't become accredited until you get into your um, you know, third year or your second year in our case. So yes, a lot of our applicants were applicants who've applied to multiple programs. Our average GPA for our first class was in the three, four-ish range, uh, so to speak, um, probably 50th percentile on the GRE. Um, we certainly saw that go up markedly with our second cohort and, and certainly once we're accredited, it'll go up even higher. Now having said that, uh, what we are not doing is recruiting top GPA GRE. Uh, we won't get into this a whole lot, but we strongly believe in all of those things like the soft skills, emotional intelligence, grit, all those kinds of things. We measure those ad nauseum. We think that there's a cutoff GPA and a cutoff G, uh, GRE that is good enough to pass, but that a 4.0 GPA is no better than a 3.9, no better than a 3.8, no better than a 3.7. You know, tick it down. We, we eliminate tons and tons of people like Ron Payton and others who, I don't know what he got in his undergrad, but may not have been the, the smartest uh, uh, sort of one in the deck. Um, and, and, and we miss people. Uh, and no offense to anyone here in the room that's a student, but by and large, DPT programs recruit brainiacs. That's what we recruit because that's the only cut line we know how to draw is around GPA and GRE to deal with the onslaught of the applicant pool. So we'd like to shift that. Yeah, you bet. Well, we're building a geriatric residency as we speak. Uh, to help address that. So certainly, uh, I tell people all the time, if I were a new therapist, uh, I would be specializing in geriatrics. That would be absolutely where I'd go. So, um, you know, uh, we're working, the, the beauty of this curriculum to address that question specifically is we can draw from the best faculty. We don't have to have faculty living in Knoxville. So we truly believe we can recruit world-class faculty uh, in all specialty areas. Um, we're developing, I know you have an educational residency program. We're building a blended learning certification program um, to train 
trained faculty. Uh, a lot of faculty are world class, maybe up in, on a stage. Uh, online teaching is a completely different animal altogether, and some people can make the transition, others can't. Uh, but we think that the, um, the, the technology allows us to draw from faculty from all over the country in all specialty areas. This is not a musculoskeletal DPT program. Uh, we get labeled as that because of our backgrounds, uh, but we offer specialties uh, in all areas, and certainly geriatrics, if anything, should become a more um, uh, uh, premier uh, part of the curriculum than quote unquote orthopedics and sports and the difference between all those. Sometimes I have no idea what that even is, but that's another uh, question as well. Yes, you have time? Um, fair, okay, yeah, okay, fair, fair question. Um, so the question has to do with diversity of thinking, right? Because we're talking about a standardized curriculum, and oh, by the way, sharing this curriculum across multiple programs. Um, and so, I mean, I, maybe that's correct if this were to scale up across 250 different DPT programs. We, we don't think that that's gonna happen anytime sort of soon. We're not worried about um, damaging the diversity of curriculum and ideas. Uh, each of these programs, although they share curriculum, all have their own core faculty, uh, all of whom who have different mindsets and, and methods and things of teaching. So this is not a machine pumping out um, robots. Um, this is a curriculum that is molded and shaped by each institution to fit with its culture and mission. So each of these programs really looks um, in some ways more different uh, than similar in a lot of respects. But that's a great question. This will be our last one. Sally? Can you speak up just a little bit, please? Yes. Yes, so students who, um, so I showed briefly the modules. So if you're going to like an outpatient ortho, the curriculum is shaped around that. Still includes uh, neuro, peds. It's got elements of all the practice specialties regardless of the setting. If you go to more of an outpatient neuro setting, uh, the neuro modules are more of the major theme with a minor theme in all the other practice specialties. So the, the combination of the way the curriculum is structured depends on the type of setting uh, that you're in. But the students are connected um, um, once a week through live. Students are in the clinic for about 36 hours a week. Uh, and then about four hours, they're uh, in the virtual classroom, uh, as well as uh, lab activities uh, specific to the module for that week. So the exact uh, structure of the curriculum depends on the setting that they're in. Dr. Childs, I, and on behalf of all, um, well, I don't know what I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> um, we really enjoyed the presentation. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Thanks for having me. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, 
Extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.